Welcome to today's Journal Club webinar. My name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB and glad you're joining us for the presentation today. Um, our housekeeping to get started. If you look in the GoToWebinar tool panel, you'll see a handout for today's presentation. Please download that and follow along. Uh, we will take questions at the end of the presentation, so please type those at any point in the question block so we can moderate those to the presenter. Uh, when I close the webinar today, there'll be a short survey. Uh, we appreciate your feedback on this session, um, and especially any ideas for the Fall Journal Club. We were just talking about what, what types of topics we might uh, cover in the fall. So if you have any ideas, we would love to hear those. Uh, and then watch for an email. It should come to you before Wednesday of this week with a link to the recording, uh, the handout, uh, as well as the CEU certificate that you're earning for your live attendance. Uh, so I will turn things over to our Journal Club moderator. Dr. Kristen DiFilippo is teaching assistant professor at the University of Illinois. Thank you, Rachel. Today, I get to introduce our, prof our presenter. Sharon Robson is a registered dietitian and associate professor in the Department of Behavioral Health and Nutrition at the University of Delaware. She is a co-director of the Energy Balance and Nutrition Laboratory, where her research is focused on investigating eating behaviors in pediatric populations. She is particularly interested in behaviors that impact energy intake and diet quality. Today, she's going to be sharing her work and specifically talking about research methods behind systematic review and with meta-analysis. So I want to thank her for sharing her expertise with us today. And at this point, I can pass it over to Dr. Robson. Wonderful. Thanks so much. And thank you for having me here today. And the purpose as we go through today's presentation is to really focus on the research methods um, from this particular paper. So I won't necessarily getting in getting into the details of, you know, the findings um, from a standpoint of what do they mean, but in terms of how do we look at them um, when we're trying to conduct a systematic review um, and meta-analysis. So this work is never done in solo. This work is done as part of a larger team. And unfortunately, none of them, despite being quite a large team, were able to uh, join me today as part of this presentation. But one thing I want to note that relates to thinking about methodology around systematic reviews and meta-analyses is having a really strong team. And we have a team here that has content expertise, but then we also have individuals who have methodology expertise, particularly around the analysis component related to the meta-analysis. So I certainly want to make sure I acknowledge Mary Beth, Samantha, Marcus, and Gemma, all who uh, engaged in this together, and we each brought something different to the table, which really strengthened uh, the process as we went through. This work was supported uh, by a grant from the Food Marketing Institute Foundation. Specifically, in terms of the nutrition educator competencies, uh, they are listed here on the screen. So we really hope to be able to, you know, describe the basic approach, types of approaches used by researchers to study diet health relationships and describe their advantages and limitations. So thinking specifically about systematic reviews and meta-analyses, making sure that we critically evaluate the claims associated with the research study finding food product, dietary supplement, or eating style based on nutrition educators, knowledge of nutrition approaches used to study diet health relationships, and then certainly um, from the research methods, really thinking how do we analyze, evaluate, and interpret nutrition education research and apply it to practice. 
when we think about that diet health relationship, we're going to be really thinking about the relationship between family meals um, and certain dietary outcomes. So in thinking how to best walk through the methods, I thought we want to really think about what are the questions to be answered to help us understand what are the components that are important of a systematic review or a meta-analysis? So I hope to answer these four questions as we spend time in this journal club today. So first, understanding why do we conduct a systematic review and meta-analysis? What's the importance of this type of uh, study design? How is the research study designed? What are all the components that we need to think about to hopefully do a strong systematic review and meta-analysis? How are these data reported and analyzed? And then what lessons were learned? And there's certainly always lessons uh, learned and things that you might do differently the next time. So to help us understand why we might do a systematic review with a meta-analysis, I do think it's important to have a little bit of background on the topic in which we wrote this um, paper. And the focus was really on family meals. So family meals are really broadly defined typically as at least an adult and a child um, eating together. There's many other definitions, so I don't want you to think that's not the only one. But in general, when we're doing research, we try to, at a minimum, think about is there at least one parent and one child um, who are having a meal together. And what we've seen through a lot of individual studies is that there's a demonstration that the more frequent a family's having meals, so, you know, having them five to six times a week, those have been associated with positive health and dietary outcomes. And there's a variety of different outcomes which have been um, looked at in each of these individual studies. So one step that you want to look at if you're beginning to think about doing a systematic review is, has one been done before? So in looking at the literature when we initially um, began this process is there had been one that was in adolescence. And they looked at a similar idea where they wanted to understand is more frequent family meals associated um, with anything. And they found that there was an increase um, to the odds of eating healthy foods, which they had uh, a broader definition for, and a decrease um, in the odds of eating unhealthy foods. Now, this was really only in adolescence, and they had grouped several different dietary um, outcomes to look at this particular piece. So we saw that there was a signal that perhaps, you know, we might be able to understand a little bit more. Is there this relationship between the frequency of family meals being consumed and potential dietary outcomes? One of the limitations, though, of this particular um, systematic review that had been done in adolescents is it talked about, you know, not necessarily controlling for thinking about other mechanisms that might be contributing to why we're seeing these positive outcomes. And because of our team, which um, include many who have some background in psychology, we had really looked at some of the literature and seen some of the work in the area of family functioning. So family functioning can be really broadly defined. And what we see is that when they're looking at family functioning or family-based interventions that include aspects of functioning, there's this improvement in parent and child health behaviors. And again, these health behaviors can be defined really broadly. You can see there that family functioning or family-based interventions have these different components. So it might be specifically looking at family connectedness or cohesion or communication. Often family functioning wasn't necessarily the outcome. But in the family meal literature, one thing we had seen is that several studies within their analyses would control for family functioning, meaning they recognize there was some level of influence. 
So we were thinking, well, is there any way that, you know, this is an outcome of more frequent family meals might have greater family functioning? And we hadn't seen that piece explored yet, yet there had been some indication that this might be necessary. So because of all these individual studies that had shown some positive, sometimes maybe there wasn't necessarily a positive outcome, maybe there was no significant finding, we wanted to really think about, well, how do we summarize all these data that have been, you know, out there in individual studies, and it led us to a systematic review. So very simplistically, a systematic review um, aims to provide an up-to-date summary of the state of a research knowledge about a given issue. For this particular study, we wanted to understand that given issue to be family meals. So understanding do more frequent family meals have more positive outcomes in terms of diet-related outcomes, and is there a relationship with family functioning? So this is an initial step of why you might choose this type of methodology is to think about, I want to review or answer a broad question, but I don't want to necessarily just pull one study, right? I want to understand across all the studies what has been found. So that hopefully begins to answer our first question of why conduct a systematic review, um, and we'll dive a little bit more into thinking about the meta-analysis part, but really it's to be able to summarize, hopefully, some independent or individual um, studies. Now we want to think about, well, how do you begin to design uh, a study using a systematic review? So I could tell you this is hands down the place you would want to start at is looking at the Cochrane Handbook, and I put um, the direct citation there. This um, was developed many years ago and continuously is updated. It leads you through the process in incredible detail. So if you're not familiar with a systematic review, this is you wanna, what you want to use as essentially your guiding document. And we certainly use this as we um, delve into this research project. In addition to the Cochrane Handbook, there's different reporting guidelines. And for those of you who are in the area of research, you've seen many of the reporting guidelines. Often you're required to submit them when you're submitting a manuscript for publication. So we use the PRISMA statement. At the time of publication and when we were preparing this, we used the 2009 um, PRISMA statement, which indicates what I need to report in a paper when I'm doing a systematic review uh, with a meta-analysis. I will say uh, there is a, a new statement that has been updated that recently came out. So the 2020 PRISMA is what you would wanna be using if you're thinking about um, doing a systematic review. But this is really important that you're following um, the different components you would wanna include uh, while you report the information out in a manuscript. So to begin, like most research uh, studies, you want to think about what is the research question. When we begin to think about the research question, um, there's some key components we want to consider. So for this particular systematic review and meta-analysis, we indicated our research question by stating our primary purpose of the systematic review and meta-analysis was to explore the direction and magnitude of exposure to family meals and dietary and family functioning outcomes in children. So you might be wondering, why am I pointing out this research question um, so specifically? But this really begins to lay the foundation for the methods that you'll put into place. So when we work on a systematic review, often what's referred to are different PICO components. And PICO stands for Population, Intervention, Comparators, and Outcome. So when you're writing your research question for a systematic review, you want to make sure that you hopefully have 
included each of these components in your research question or your purpose statement. Now, I will say you may not have comparators, um, such as we didn't necessarily require that, so that may be a component that may not always be added. To help you understand this, I wanted to go through my simple uh, research purpose and show you where each of these uh, aspects are listed. So when we go back to the research question, you can see that my outcome or population um, of interest is children. I will later define this as we begin to look more uh, deeply at the methodology for a systematic review, but that gets at the P, part of PICO. Next, we wanted to think about the intervention. So we specifically were looking at family meals. We had to define family meals. And if you've read um, the paper, you'll see that we defined them as, you know, at least one parent and uh, one child sitting together for a meal. So you have to think about what is that intervention that you're interested in. You want to think about comparators if you, comparators if you have them. I did not. But then what are the outcomes? So you can see here that we were looking at dietary outcomes and also family functioning outcomes. So those elements you should always be able to define within your research question as a starting point. And you're going to hear me refer back to the PICO component several times uh, throughout the presentation, but it's really what drives much of the other processes. So once you've developed your research question, it's begun to really help you think about hopefully, you know, what you're going to be interested in. And you want to set some criteria on what study will be eligible to be included in your systematic review and meta-analysis and what may not be. So when you're looking at eligibility criteria, you would do it in a similar way for a, a research study, but right, we're already looking at ones that have been published. We want to think about what are the populations, what are the interventions, and what are the study designs of the papers that we might want to include in our systematic analysis. So first is the population. For our particular study, we were interested in children, as you saw in my research question, and then we defined that as ages 2 to 18. You want to think about for each of these things, what are the strengths or what are the weaknesses as you design um, the eligibility criteria for a systematic review. We had a pretty broad age range. We specifically decided to leave that minimum at two because we really felt like younger kids weren't necessarily, you know, having family meals or certainly infants may not be consuming food in um, as typical of a manner if they're only on um, human milk or formula. So that helped us think about our um, age range. However, we also wanted to be broad, recognizing that we wanted to make sure we were able to cast a wide net and hoping to be able to answer our research question. So that is one thing that you want to think about. What are the strengths and weaknesses of how you might define your population? Next, we had to, you know, define the interventions. So we really wanted family meals to be the intervention. So we noted that we could have an intervention on family meals or it might be somehow an exposure to family meals. The reason we decided to increase it from not just an intervention, but also include exposures is recognizing that much of this literature is cross-sectional or longitudinal. So by demonstrating that it could be an exposure to family meals, again, we were able to cast a wide net. You then have to think about what do you want to include in terms of study design? And this may be, you know, depending upon your purpose of your systematic review. So for us, you can see that we, again, we're open to many study designs. They could be cross-sectional, longitudinal, a cohort, or randomized. 
things such as case studies or commentaries or just methods, uh, papers, those were excluded because we didn't feel like they'd help us answer our research question. There's sometimes additional literature which um, people can certainly include, we chose not to, such as a dissertation or a thesis. This information um, may not be peer reviewed, but may be published depending upon the database in which you're searching and could potentially be something that you may want to uh, include. So I just noted in the study selection criteria where these elements were included for eligibility criteria. And this is letting you know what studies we want to consider as part of the systematic review. This certainly is something, again, that can help you understand what the limitations may be. So perhaps we've missed some studies that did a great job but were case studies, and we didn't include them um, to answer our question, despite they might have had the information or data uh, in there. So once you've decided what your eligibility criteria are, you need to think about how are we going to now apply this to be able to do a search and gather the potential publications that are available. So as uh, suggested through the Cochrane Handbook, and I would certainly recommend, is you want to involve someone who is an experienced librarian or an information specialist. And we specifically worked with a librarian to conduct this uh, study, and she is someone who has worked in the area of health sciences, but also done uh, systematic reviews. Why you would want to include them as these individuals can help you understand what your search terms need to be, how you would develop that search. We also have great conversations on what databases you might want to search. So part of this conversation, hopefully, is identifying these databases. And you can see the different uh, databases we used as part of our search um, for this particular project. And we used five. Most individuals are selecting several databases um, because you don't want to necessarily miss studies that might be published in a certain database. And then once you've done that, you have your search strategy and hopefully that librarian or information specialist will help you determine what does that search strategy look like? And this usually is thinking about what are the key search terms? And this is where your expertise and you're working in collaboration to say, you know, I wanted the term family meals, for example, or I wanted children in there. We need to think about how would we put this search together so then we can be consistent in terms of how we go through the process. So here, very specifically, uh, we indicated the search strategy um, in the manuscript, and I just highlight where these things are located to help you think about the methodology. So first I noted the databases um, and then the key search terms. What's important to understand for this particular paper is we had two separate outcomes. Um, one was really dietary outcomes and one was family functioning. So we actually did two separate searches because we felt like the search terms um, were different in what we needed. And what our approach or how we went about it is that we established it in PubMed that search terminology and how we went about it. And then we use that and basically put it into each of the other databases. And again, this was done by, you know, someone who has the expertise with us giving the expertise in terms of content area. And if you want the actual search, you can always uh, get that through supplementary data. And that's a key piece and part of Prisma guidelines is that you've included an example of the search um, that you have done. 
So we just talked a little bit about the search as a, a starting point, and that sort of gets you rolling through this process. So usually you conduct your search, and that would be across all of the different databases. And part of that process is then making sure that you've removed duplicates as a next step, because you could imagine that certainly PubMed might include one paper and you know, you also might have Web of Science, the same publication. It's the same exact study. It's just in different databases. So as part of, you know, doing that search is then understanding, has there been duplication? Because you don't want to um, be reviewing that same paper twice. Once you have removed all duplicates, you then go through a title and abstract screening where you're using those eligibility criteria that you have established and you're going to determine, will this paper go forward in terms of actually reviewing the full study or not? This is done by two individuals, typically independently, and then you come together to say, hey, did I decide to move this forward or not? If not, you want to make sure you're recording why. Is it not a fit? Was it, for our example, we didn't include anything that was not in English because none of us speak a second language. So we would maybe perhaps note that it was, you know, one that was not um, in English. Once that process is done, you then will review the full article. So these are ones that you feel like met your eligibility criteria. Or if you didn't have enough information, you might have moved it forward to be able to review the full article. So the next, you again have two independent um, reviewers look at every single article reading the entire thing from beginning to end and understanding does it meet your eligibility criteria again your eligibility criteria are the same but as many of you realize from just the title and abstract you may not be able to understand all the details one thing I see often is you know the study design it hopefully is mentioned in the abstract but sometimes you have to uh, dive a little bit deeper for us specifically, we had to understand, was it really looking at family meals? Did it include outcomes related to diet or family functioning? After we've done that full review, you then have your selected articles. These are the articles that will be included in your systematic review. This process is pretty easy and you, know, you can talk through it really quickly, but it's incredibly tedious and takes an incredible amount of time. There's a lot of discussion that happens in case, you know, the two independent reviewers, maybe they don't agree on if an article should be included or not. And you might have a third person who would read that article and then you would come to consensus. Most importantly, and I tried to really highlight that here, is you want to document every single thing about this search process. You want to indicate the date when that search was done. You may need to do an updated um, search closer to the time of publication if it's something that, you know, there's thousands and thousands of articles. You want to understand who did it. You should always be able to identify who the independent reviewers were and who were part of those conversations. Make sure you understand and know those search terms. You can save the searches when you've done them, but you want to be able to always go back and replicate this if needed. And then most importantly, too, are these exclusion reasons. So why was a title and abstract um, record, you know, excluded or that full article excluded? That's really important for transparency in this process to understand. So these are the broad strokes as you go through a systematic review that you want to make sure you're doing, but you're also documenting along the way. So once you have your selected articles, um, you want to understand, well, what data are we going to destroy? extract from here. We have these articles. That's that's step one. That's an important piece. But now you need to think about what are the pieces of uh, data. 
you know, the data needed for the review are really planned in advance. They should be related to the PICO components related to your eligibility criteria. So again, similar to the initial screening process is the data that you're interested in, you're going to extract by two independent authors who will then compare. So for us, for this particular study, we um, excluded a extracted, sorry, a variety of data. So we made sure that we always had the first author, the primary data source, the study design. We wanted to understand the exposure variable of family meals and perhaps how that was defined. Why that was important is sometimes family meals was looked at as continuous. Other times it might have been bucketed into greater than three family meals a week or less than um, or equal to three family meals a week. We wanted to look at the different uh, outcome variables. So specifically for the dietary outcomes, we looked at many. So we wanted to extract any information on fruit and vegetable intake, sugar sweetened beverage intake, looked at desserts or diet quality. And for each of those, as you're extracting it, you want to make sure you have enough information that you understand if it's diet quality, how was it defined? Was it the healthy eating index or you know the Mediterranean diet? And then there is family functioning. So anything related broadly to how we define family functioning, we would extract. We also looked at the location of the study, variety of participant outcomes, so typical, sorry, participant characteristics. So these were things such as um, their age, their race, their ethnicity, um, their sex, and then certainly the outcome. So, you know, what did they find in terms of the relationship between family meals and family functioning, for example? This takes a lot of time and is a lot, you know, in terms of attention to detail. You can decide uh, what information you want, again, to be able to answer your question. And our question is really looking at, you know, the frequency of family meals and dietary and family functioning outcomes. We simply used an Excel spreadsheet where we had columns for each of, you know, the data components we were interested in or the variables, and we put that information um, in that data sheet. And after doing one, we talked about it. So the two individuals who are independently extracting talked about it to make sure that, you know, it was being done in that same manner. Now you might be thinking, well, this is great, but every paper might not have all the information we want. And this is particularly important um, if you're planning on doing a, a meta-analysis, which we were. So authors can be contacted for additional information. And as part of our systematic review with meta-analysis, we did contact four additional authors um, to understand if they had the data and perhaps it just was not presented. You may not get a response um, or sometimes the paper could be, you know, from many years ago and, you know, individuals have moved institutions or may no longer have uh, access to that information. But it's certainly worth a try. And it is, again, one of the steps that's recommended in that Cochrane handbook to be able to get the most complete information. So one thing that's really important is to then think about the quality of each of the studies. And there's a number of different assessment tools that you can utilize in thinking about how would I rate the quality of this research study that was done? Because when we're coming up and thinking about summarizing across studies, one maybe that was poor quality, you wanna consider the limitations of including that in your overall summary. So a challenge um, can be when you are looking for an assessment tool, which one to use. There's a lot of different opinions or thoughts. And for us, the studies that were selected were mainly observational. So we couldn't use many of the tools that have been developed for randomized control trials, for example. 
So this is one that's available through the National Institutes of Health, and it's a simple quality assessment tool, and there's a snapshot of some of the questions that it asks. And ultimately, you make a decision on the risk for this particular, for each study that's selected. You would determine that the overall quality was good, meaning that it has the least risk of bias. It could be fair, meaning that it might be susceptible to some bias, or poor, um, meaning that there's significant bias in the study. And that's based on how you responded to the question. So, for example, was the research question or objective in this paper clearly stated? You would say yes, no, or, you know, it maybe wasn't reported or not applicable. So every single study that you select as part of your systematic uh, review, you want to somehow do some type of uh, quality assessment to understand potential uh, areas of bias. So that hopefully has given you some indication of, well, how is a study designed, but helps you more think about the methodology for conducting a systematic review. So now we're going to move into how are data reported and analyzed, and this is where we'll expand some into thinking about a meta-analysis. So for a systematic review, you're really synthesizing results. So you're looking across these papers that you've now included, and you want to summarize them somehow. So a systematic review, usually you're synthesizing the different study characteristics. So you want to think about what were the components related to PICO, and then what were the data that were extracted, and how do I summarize across all of them? Your purpose really is to be able to draw some type of conclusion about this body of evidence. So we're looking at the body of evidence, looking at, you know, family meal frequency and different dietary outcomes and family meal frequency and family functioning. And we want it to be able to describe, right, what are the study characteristics? And that can certainly show you perhaps some of the limitations in the data um, or information that's been published to date. So very simply, you're often just tabulating uh, the information in terms of frequencies um, to be able to allow you to make these comparisons. So one way to do this is a first step of thinking about this tabulation is something that's known as a consort diagram. Um, most all systematic reviews require a consort diagram to be submitted as part of publication. We have two, and again, it's because we had two outcomes. We essentially did two separate um, searches. You always start with, you know, the number of studies that were identified overall, and you can sort of see the process that I just talked through, thinking about you remove any duplicates, then you want to think about for those where the title and abstract were screened, why were they excluded, Then you can see the number of papers that went under full review, and then again, the exclusion uh, criteria, how many were then included in the systematic review, and then you can see much fewer were included in a meta-analysis. So for us, um, and again, this is where I certainly relied on those with the expertise in the area of meta-analyses, we looked at, you know, having to have at least three or more studies. So we could have um, more accurate, I should say, um, confidence in terms of our effect estimates for the meta-analysis. So this walks you through to see from where you start in terms of doing your search to where you end in terms of what's included in a systematic review and meta-analysis. For each um, outcome, we also had this table, and this essentially was a table when we're extracting data we were utilizing. This is a supplementary piece. Every journal is very different in terms of if they want it to be supplementary or part of the actual publication. 
given its many, many pages uh, in length, they often tend to be a supplement to the article. But this is just an example. So in the first column, you can see we have our authors, the year of the study and location. Those are all things that I indicated to you we extracted from each of the studies. You can see that primary data source. So that was if it was from a particular um, study, the study design. You can see our um, exposure variable there. So when we looked at family meals, sometimes they defined if it was breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Sometimes it didn't. The outcome variable here was fruits and vegetables. We had some of our sample characteristics and then our outcomes. And within our outcomes, we always noted if they were adjusted for anything, meaning what might be covariates that were considered in the analysis. So this is just an example of a table that often is included, but this is what you're synthesizing, is all this information across this table. So we wanted to attempt to do a meta-analysis because we knew that some of the outcomes were, you know, similar that were being looked at across studies. And ultimately important to understand is that a meta-analysis is just this combination of results from two or more separate studies. So ultimately we're trying to understand, you know, what is happening. I think many of us could say, sure, I could go find a you know, research paper that might support my findings, and I could certainly go find another research paper that might actually not support my findings. So by doing a meta-analysis, it allows us to look across data, across separate studies, and hopefully come to a conclusion. So we need to somehow create a summary statistic um, for each study, and then ultimately we want to combine that to understand the intervention effect. And these are usually weighted, meaning weighted based on the sample size uh, typically for a study. To be able to report that out, uh, a forest plot is often used. And I know one thing in thinking about this as a methodology is understanding how do I report out and what do I report out? So I just pulled one. Um, there's another forest plot that shows all the different dietary outcomes um, in this paper, but I thought this one was much easier to see on the screen. So this first one here is uh, demonstrating the association between the frequency of family meals and family connectedness. Family connectedness was one of the components of family functioning. On the left-hand side, you're going to see the first author in the year it was published. And then you can see, um, you see Welsh there, um, they had A and B, and they had two different groups. What you then notice in terms of the horizontal line in the little uh, diamond is ultimately looking at the summary statistic for that particular study, and then the confidence interval around it. So we're looking at, you know, the relationship between family meals and family connectedness. And then there is uh, the weighting. And again, this is based on the sample size. The larger the study, the more confident we might be able to be in the results. What most people are familiar with is looking at that nice little blue diamond there, which ultimately is, I like to describe it as sort of a mean of means or a summary overall and thinking about, you know, is there a relationship here, you know, yes or no. And you can see that it's related to that subtotal. So across these three um, independent pieces of the study, what did we see in terms of family meals and family connectedness? And this was not significant um, in terms of what we saw. When we looked at, though, just the frequency of family dinner and family connectedness, and this would, again, be studies that reported on only family dinner, and they specifically uh, reported on family connectedness, um, we saw that, you know, it was stronger, but still not significant from that p-value 0.05.
you also see that that diamond is a bit more spread out horizontally. That's letting us know that there is more heterogeneity, meaning there's a lot more variation um, within these three studies. This is simply a forest plot. So this is one of the ways that you often are demonstrating um, when you're trying to summarize across studies using a meta-analysis. So hopefully that has given you some level, a broader high level on how you might report data and analyze them. So thinking about a consort diagram, usually some type of table where the different uh, data that have been extracted are reported. And then usually you see some type of forest plot to um, show uh, what you've seen from your meta-analysis. And now I'm going to move into what are some of the lessons learned. And I think these are always things that are important to think about after you are using a methodology or thinking about, you know, the methods you put in place. So for lessons learned, I think documentation is absolutely essential. And I had not, but since this, I've used a different systematic review software that helps walk you through this process and then documents in ways for you. Why I say documentation is essential is depending upon the length of time you have, um, the review process can take a long time. And if you're taking, you know, six or more months, you may need to refresh your search where you're using those same search terms and seeing if anything new perhaps has been published. If it has, you need to then bring that into your review process. And if you're using um, a review software, it can help with that where, you know, you indicate why maybe you've rejected one to not be included in your final. So a lesson learned certainly is I would say is use this review software if you have the opportunity and access to it. Certainly a lesson learned is to collaborate with a team that's going to provide that content and methodological expertise. I started off sharing who our team uh, was and I think lessons learned is just how important that they are. I specifically think of our collaborators who have really strong expertise in the meta-analysis component. That was something that I don't have as strong of an expertise in. So making sure we're communicating that I'm able to articulate well in terms of our exposure variable and our outcome variable, but they really needed to think about, you know, the stability of the estimates that we were um, getting. Could we do meta-analysis? And there was many of the dietary outcomes we weren't able to actually include in the meta-analysis because we didn't have enough studies that had data on them. So really making sure that you have strong methodological expertise, but also individuals who are familiar with that Cochrane handbook and are going to follow, you know, this very structured process. So we're sure that we're putting the best science forward. Think about the limitations. You want to understand the limitations of every element through the systematic review. So I'm going to start with, you know, your research question. Are you going to have a research question that's really narrowly defined? Perhaps then you might not find as many studies as part of your review process, which can also be important to uncover more information or, you know, science is needed in that area. But if you will get broader, you might be able to um, include more studies. So you want to think about the limitations of your research question. Then you design your eligibility criteria, understanding what are the limitations. So for us, you know, should we have more narrowly focused on, you know, a more age, a narrow age range for children? I don't necessarily think so, but those are the limitations in terms of what I mean um, in thinking about that. One thing we did only include are studies that were U.S.-based because we recognized how a family meal might be defined in other countries outside the U.S. might be very different. However, that was also seen as a limitation, right? I'm not necessarily thinking across the entire globe, 
of looking at family male frequency and these outcomes. I'm really looking at it with um, a US-centric lens. And then when we got to thinking about, you know, what data do we extract? Perhaps there's other characteristics about the population we maybe should have extracted, such as are there specific health conditions, right? Maybe that was something we should have considered. We didn't, but we have to understand, again, the limitations. And then certainly understanding the limitations of your analysis. We had small sample size, ultimately. So while we might have had greater heterogeneity or variation across these studies, we have to understand the limitations of that. And I specifically then pointed out, thinking about, you know, lessons learned in terms of heterogeneity. There's variation across studies, particularly nutrition-based studies. And you want to be able to talk, you know, about why that might be. Unfortunately, because we had so few, we couldn't necessarily do an analysis to understand where that heterogeneity was coming from. But we could look at, for example, when we were understanding the relationship between um, family meal frequency and fruit and vegetable intake. It's because of how fruit and vegetable intake might have been measured, right? They could use a food frequency questionnaire, or maybe they're doing a 24-hour recall. So we're going to get different answers, um, and that's going to relate to the heterogeneity. So ultimately, it, it led to some of the conclusions of the paper of understanding the need for, you know, standardization around what defines a family meal, or what are these different dietary components, and how are they going to be measured? But these are important lessons to be learned, but they're also things that you want to include um, in your conclusion and in your discussion so you recognize um, how you can improve perhaps uh, the next time. And with that, that will lead me uh, to the end of uh today's journal club and thinking about a systematic review um, with meta-analysis, but I'd be happy to turn it over to uh, questions that individuals may have. Thank you so much for sharing today. Um, so question, how did you go about selecting which software to use? So we actually did not use uh, a software for this and it was a conversation to be honest with a librarian to understand um, what was available and the one I use now is called Covidence and I've certainly enjoyed doing it but we actually did it more the old-fashioned way where you are exporting typically to an Excel sheet you then um, combine all of your searches there's functions within Excel that you can look for duplication but then it's going line by line um, to confirm if you've had that duplication uh, or not so it's a lesson learned in terms of I would recommend using uh, software. And like I said, we certainly have. But at the time, um, in the conversation with the librarian, she had noted, you know, there's some software out there. I'm less comfortable with it. And there was some challenges around many of them will actually define duplicates for you now, but it's still imperfect. So you still should be doing, you know, the work yourself to make sure, have I really removed all the duplicates? But um Definitely a lesson learned, something that I've appreciated and enjoyed moving since moving on from this particular one. Um, so another question um, says, thank you so much. This is all very interesting. From my experience, a challenge to conduct a meta-analysis in addition to a systematic review has to do with needing similar measures for each outcome for each question you want to answer. I may have missed this, but for your two outcomes, do the included articles all use the same measures? And if not, how did you determine that they were close enough um, that you could? So that's a, that's a great question, and I didn't go into detail. So across our dietary outcomes, we had many. So 
we were able to, um, for some, so diet quality, for example, they used HEI. So we were able to use the health, sorry, healthy eating index. We were able to use the healthy eating index, um, to be able to include those in a meta-analysis. Many of them we didn't because there just wasn't three or more studies. In terms of family functioning, you could see from what I presented, we were only able to include those that, um, had family connectedness. Now they may not have all used, um, the same measure. And I had talked about that with the individuals who really did the meta analysis um, part and understanding, are they still getting at the same concept of family connectedness, which was clear. Um, and as long as it was, you know, able to be basically in terms of thinking of it more from like in a continuous measure, you know, we did include it, but that was a, the crux of so much of this is you weren't able to do a, a meta analysis from that um, perspective because the measures were all different, um, as I had indicated. So, you know, certainly something, a big take home message for us was just thinking about standard standardization um, of some of these measures or how we measure things to be able to allow us to do meta analysis. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And thank you for that question. Um, and if anyone else has any questions, you can always put those in the question box. Um, if someone was getting ready to start on a, a systematic review and meta-analysis for the first time, what do you wish you had known or what would you do differently? What would I do differently? Um, I mean, I just think it's always educating yourself. So I think about it. So I work with uh, doctoral students and I often have them do a systematic review and potentially a, a meta-analysis. So there's a learning curve there. And I always think it's reading through that Cochrane handbook and it is long and it is detailed, but understanding that systematic process to me is so incredibly important. And then also looking at, you know, the Prisma guidelines and understanding what am I going to need to report out, but understanding what I need to share for transparency and, you know, making sure this can be replicated. I think just starting there by making sure you understand all the elements, right? Then you can make the decisions and there's always going to be some limitations, but that is to me, every time I do it, I always go back to that Cochrane handbook. I start there. I think through it. You know, I read through it. I make sure, you know, are these the elements that we want? And, you know, making sure that if somebody were to come behind me, they could do the same exact process and hopefully end up in the same spot. So I really think that replication and thinking about the importance of that is so important, you know, in all science. But this is something that, you know, databases are available. Anybody should be able to take my search terms and put them in and get about the same. And why I say get about the same, for example, PubMed, if you do a search in, you know, today, if I do one in two months, there might be three or four, you know, different articles that weren't initially available and it's because sometimes there's a lag when things are available in some of the databases but I'm talking about three or four articles not hundreds not thousands um, but I, I think for me that is something that I just always would recommend for somebody if it's new to them is just start with understanding the process and the details of the process yeah thank you so you had mentioned that um, you know if too much time has gone by you need to update your review what time frame would you say it's been too long that you would need to go back and and add more current articles? So that I'm smiling a little bit. And there's first I would look at your journal that you're planning on submitting and seeing if they have any limitations. There are some journals that will indicate if they accept meta analyses or systematic reviews, they want it, you know, refreshed at least within the last um, six months. 
I feel like a, a six to 12 month time frame is, is pretty fair. I think otherwise, right, we all know new information is coming out. And while it might only be an article or two, when there's few articles, that can certainly influence um, your findings, perhaps. So I, I think my response really is to look at your journal and see, you know, if there's any type of guidelines around that. But being thoughtful on if the goal of this is to summarize the most up-to-date evidence, um, thinking about, you know, could it be within that past six months? And usually when you update it, you know, you have the ability just to add in the new um, articles that have since been uh, available in the database if you've extracted your information correctly. So I don't want you to think you start from the beginning, right? You're adding anything new um, at the date of that search. And that's why really indicating those dates are important um, in all your search terms. So you are doing the same exact thing again. Yeah. Also, why our library and information science people are so important. Yes, they, they are. Through that process. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Robson, for for spending your time sharing with us today about um, your, this methodology. I know it's really helpful. Um, so again, thank you. And I can pass it back to Rachel. Great. Yes. Thanks. Thank you for ec excellent presentation. Uh, just a reminder, there is a short survey when I uh, close the webinar and appreciate your feedback on this session as well as ideas for future sessions. And then watch for an email um, by Wednesday of this week with your uh, handout recording and your CEU certificate. Um, there is one more week of Journal Club, um, but I'll give you a heads up that we're moving to a Zoom platform. Uh, so you will be getting a link, hopefully in the next day or two, if you've registered for next Monday, and you'll be uh, the first one of the first ones to experience uh, our new Journal Club platform. Um, and then I, there's several webinars that are in the works. So watch the SNEB calendar uh, for those to get posted. And then just a reminder that conference registration is open. Uh, there is opportunities to attend in person in Atlanta, Georgia in July, as well as to participate virtually. Um, so, again, watch the website for all the information about um, the conferences here and look forward to seeing you back online.